Hello, my name is Nicholas Ward, and welcome to the 20th episode of Historical Hysteria, where I take everything good and fluffy in the world and find the corpses. I know what you're hiding. I just need to prove it. Dissecting corpses is the bread and butter of medical schools. Getting elbow deep in a cadaver is how young doctors and surgeons learn the tricks of their trade and get over their basic human emotions about death. Fun fact, surgeons have very high levels of psychopathy. Today, those bodies largely come from the willing donations of people who donate their bodies to medical science, and provided the military doesn't intercept them and use them to test explosives, these corpses save lives. But how did dissections first begin? Because the question, hey, uh, can I chop up your mum for, uh, for science, is a tough sell the first time around. Unsurprisingly, large-scale dissections for medical education were all but impossible until the 20th century. Unfortunately, prior to this, doctors didn't take no for an answer, and today we will be following a trail of corpses back to 19th century Scotland and two enterprising serial killers who, in many ways, can be considered two of the fathers of modern medicine. Grave robbing is an ancient pastime, and in fact, our earliest records of grave robbing go all the way back to ancient Egypt and the Great Pyramids. Not only were the pyramids raided well before Europeans arrived, but there is good evidence they were raided before they were even finished, with workers making off with food and fancy ointments that were often placed within the tombs. Grave robbing, however, has always been difficult. After all, it's difficult to rock up to your local market laden down with a pharaoh's treasures and say, oh, I, uh, I found it in the desert. Now, prior to the 19th century, grave robbing was all about the stuff. But starting in the 19th century, Driven by the birth of modern surgery, a new and exciting form of grave robbing was born. Body snatching. The dissection of corpses was and is a valuable learning tool for doctors. That was, through many cultures and eons, almost completely illegal. Dissections have existed since at least the classical period, but were mostly conducted on animals to gain a greater understanding of them. Human dissections were another matter, and many societies either completely or mostly made human dissection illegal usually the only exceptions being executions and war. This was not, however, enough to stop doctors. One of the most famous paintings of all time, The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. You know the one, it's uh, Adam is casually leaning back and touching fingers with God. It's thought by some to be based off an illegal dissection of the human brain. Now, these dissections were on a small scale during the Renaissance and Age of Discovery, but knock knock, it's the horrors of the Industrial Revolution and our old friend, modern medicine, with an evil gleam in its eye. With the medical revolution of the early 19th century, doctors had for the first time actual weapons against human infirmity. But to use them effectively, they needed to know some simple questions like, how is the body constructed? And what does it actually do? And there was only so much you could learn from experimenting on orphans and prisoners. As modern medicine began to differentiate doctors and surgeons from homeopaths and apothecaries, a need to prove a distinct and reliable field emerged. Dissections played an enormous part in this. Beginning in the 16th century, European nations began reducing restrictions on dissections, though these remained very small in scale and were mostly still of executed people. I would say criminals, but this was the 16th century. But even as demand for bodies grew, supply reduced as between the 16th and the 19th century, executions became less and less common. Body donation was the obvious go-to, however, there were two problems. The first, like today, body donations were low, and also many countries outlawed donating bodies to science anyway. 
Some found creative ways around this. Our old friend Ignaz Semmelweis from episode 3 worked at Vienna General Hospital, which had a morgue where your body would be quickly spirited away in the event of your death. Some hospitals targeted the poor. Can't pay your medical bill? Ah well, pay with your corpse. Others, however, went for a more direct approach, simply turning up and offering to buy whatever corpse you happen to have lying around. But what is on the edge of every town? What is generally poorly guarded? What suddenly valuable resource was just rotting in the ground? And here, the trail of corpses leads us to a predictable outcome. With demand of corpses exceeding the supply, grave robbing became common across Europe and America. Enterprising gangs would pay off cemetery staff or sneak into graveyards to dig up fresh graves, rushing the bodies to doctors who paid without question. And in 1828, in Edinburgh, Scotland, two men found themselves in want of some easy cash, which brings us to Burke and Hare. William Burke was Scots-Irish. Born in 1792, he had served in the army for a few years, married, then abandoned his family to move to Scotland. William Burke remarried and moved to Edinburgh, where he became a reasonably successful cobbler. He was said to have been a fun-loving, jovial Presbyterian who entertained people with singing and dancing while he worked. William Hare was also Scots-Irish, though his early life is a bit of a mystery. He, likewise, moved to Scotland to work in the early 19th century. Hare was said to be violent, short-tempered, and covered in scars. Despite all, possibly because of his shortcomings, he convinced the widow of his former landlord to marry him and took over her lodging house. Both men had worked on the Union Canal and moved to Edinburgh at similar times. However, they only became acquainted when they had gone to the country to work in seasonal harvest, common practice at the time. The two became such fast friends that Burke went to live in Hare's lodging house with his wife, where they drank hard and partied harder. However, on the 29th of November, 1827, one of Hare's tenants suddenly died, leaving an unpaid bill. The two friends, while presumably drunk, came up with a simple plan. Waiting for the tenant to be put in his coffin, they pried it open, replaced the body with bark, and took it to the offices of Dr. Robert Knox, a local anatomist who paid them £7 and 10 shillings for the body, a bit less than £800 or US dollars in today's money. Now, Edinburgh in the early 19th century found itself in a strange position. It was both a centre for medical research, but it had a very restrictive anti-dissection law. Only those who committed suicide were executed or had died orphans were allowed to be dissected. This only amounted, around this time, to about 50 corpses a year. Why do people hate orphans so much? Now, these restrictions made Edinburgh a major centre for grave robbing. Robert Knox, who Burke and Hare would sell all of their corpses to, like most doctors at the time, had a don't-ask-don't-tell policy. Robert Knox was not some two-bit huckster buying corpses for fun. He was a renowned doctor. Knox graduated from Edinburgh University in 1814. He enlisted with the army and treated men at the Battle of Waterloo, then in South Africa during the Hossa Rebellion, before returning to Edinburgh where his extensive practical knowledge earned him much respect. Knox took up private tutelage and became one of the city's most attended lecturers. Unfortunately, he, like everyone else, was short on corpses. And he, like most doctors, turned to buying them under the table. To illustrate both how common this practice was, and what an open secret it was, Knox never personally dealt with Hare and Burke. Instead, he relayed payments through assistance. Burke and Hare immediately got a taste for easy money, and decided they would be fools not to explore it. But you know what? Dicking up graves is hard, and at the time, because of how prevalent grave robbing was becoming, cemeteries had begun 
fortifying, building iron cages around graves and constructing decomposition rooms so that bodies wouldn't be useful anymore. So Burke and Hare said one day, surely there is an easier way to get a hold of these bodies. Murder. Itching for that next fix, Burke and Hare waited a grand total of two months to graduate from grave robbing to murder. Now, the progress of victims is not known. However, it is thought by many, including, weirdly, the author Sir William Scott, who became obsessed with the case, that the first victim was another of Hare's lodges. The man had become feverish, and so, to, I guess, put him out of his misery, Burke lay across the man's chest while Hare smothered him with a pillow. This body, Knox again bought instantly, paying £10. The method they used was surprisingly ingenious, as it left no marks and quickly suffocated the victim by compressing their chest. They would later replace the pillow with just Hare's hands clamped over the victim's nose and mouth. Over 10 months, Burke and Hare would kill 16 people, selling all of their bodies to Dr. Robert Knox for between 8 and 10 pounds. 16 people were murdered for less than 15,000 modern dollars, split between them. In 1828, the pair were caught by some of Hare's lodgers, who uncovered one of their unlucky victims and alerted the police. The story spread like wildfire through Edinburgh and then the UK, and this open secret of the medical community became public knowledge. Burke and Hare were arrested, and Hare almost immediately flipped on Burke, securing immunity for himself in exchange for throwing his friend under the bus. Burke would be executed on the 28th of January 1829, and as part of his punishment, his body was ordered dissected. His skeleton was preserved, and probably the most fucked up part of this, someone made a wallet out of Burke's skin. I, I don't know why though, I can't find information on it. As for Hare, his wife, and Burke's wife, all of whom had taken part in the murders, they all disappeared, leaving Edinburgh shortly afterwards. The publicity ruined Dr. Knox's career, and it never recovered. Now how the hell am I going to turn this around and say that two serial killers and their sugar daddy were founding fathers of modern medicine? The fallout from Burke and Hare's murder spree was enormous. About 25,000 people attended Burke's execution. The attention showed the need for serious medical reform, and in 1832 the UK Parliament passed the Anatomy Act, requiring all anatomy teachers to be licensed, but also making it legal to dissect donated bodies, completely ending the trade in stolen corpses. But, in a way, that makes Burke, Hare, and Knox the fathers of modern dissections, because without them, that bill was still a long way off. Body snatching would fall out of favour in the UK after 1832, but it would remain common in other countries until the late 19th century. In America, body snatching was common until 1882. Even presidents were not immune. In 1878, the body of Senator John Scott Harrison, father of President Benjamin Harrison and son of President William Henry Harrison, his body was snatched the day after his funeral. Harrison's sons would later find the body stuffed into a chute suspended from a rope at the Ohio Medical College. Though theft of wealthy corpses was rare, and as should be a surprise to no one, these thefts generally targeted black cemeteries. Because, I mean, if you can't get justice while you're alive, what chance do you have when you're dead? And that brings to an end this grisly episode of the weird war fought by medicine, where doctors said, you know, if you won't let us play with corpses, by God we're going to find them anyway. And now, thankfully, the days of body snatching are a long way behind us. Right? Well, unfortunately, the trail of bodies attached to medical schools does not end in the early 19th century with Burke and Hare, or the late 19th century with William Henry Harrison, 
but instead extends well into the 20th century. Let me introduce you to the Calcutta Boneworks, a factory that processed skeletons, as in boiled the flesh from the corpses, and assembled them for medical colleges. They processed about 900 skeletons a year and closed in 1985. Take a wild guess what started to happen in Calcutta when the supply of donated bodies slipped behind demand. Yay, grave robbing. Oh, and if you think, 1985, that's fine, we're finally done with grave robbing. As of taping, India, especially Calcutta, still has a lucrative trade in illegal skeletons for medical use, and the police regularly bust warehouses filled to the brim with skeletons. The last major bust was in 2017, and there is no indication the trade has slowed down. And who are all these skeletons for? Medical colleges, of course. Body snatching is often left out of modern medical history because it's awful, and it involves serial killers. Doctors were fully aware that the hardened criminals turning up with the dirty corpses weren't selling their auntie's bodies, and they didn't care. And yet, in a way, this period of dissections was necessary, both to demonstrate the need for comprehensive regulation and licensing of modern medicine, and for the invaluable medical knowledge that it provided doctors at the time. Today, we try to write that out of history, with cutesy words and euphemisms and vibarying stories like Burke and Hare, in Believe It or Not magazines and gross-out horror stories. But these events were as important to the history of medicine as the invention of vaccines and hygiene. The ugly truth of stories like the body snatches is they show that progress often comes at the cost of our humanity. That is all for today. Before I go, I will leave you with this fun factoid. In 1998, repairs at Benjamin Franklin's old house found a secret room containing the remains of 15 people, six of which were children. The most likely origin of the bones is William Hewson, a surgeon friend of Franklin's who operated an anatomy school from Franklin's home at the time. It is likely he obtained the bodies illegally. Have a good one out there.